the beginning of every year, I like to dedicate a talk to reviewing what was the Buddha about. We have all this information, and most of it's mythological. But I'm interested in trying to sort out more things about this person. I do believe that the person we call the Buddha existed, but it's hard to tell exactly uh, when and where he lived and uh, for sure and so forth and so on. So tonight's the topic of uh, tonight's talk is why the Buddha meditated, and why we should also. So I'm going to make some comments about um, this person, what his life was like. We can surmise what his life was like and what his life circumstances were that might have prompted him to uh, take the path that he took. And maybe consider some similarities between that time, over 25 centuries ago, and uh, these days, why would we want to meditate? What would be our motivations? And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what motivated me to start meditating and why I continue after 40 years uh, still meditating. Actually, if you think about first learned transcendental meditation, that was over 50 years ago. So I've been doing this a long time. So first about the Buddha. His name was Siddhartha Gautama. And um, he uh, lived either in the 6th or the 5th centuries before the Common Era. There's been some controversy about how to date uh, his lifetime. But there seems to be consensus that he lived around 80 years, which is pretty remarkable. For that uh, era. Uh, The first 29 years of his life were within the cultural norms of his clan, the Kshatriya clan, uh, which occupied a leadership role in a small socio-political organization. It was led by his father. His first name, Siddhartha, means one who has accomplished a goal. Siddha means accomplished and Artha means goal. Family name was Gautama, which can be translated as one who has most light. The Kshatriya were apparently not entirely a Vedic uh, clan. Uh, the Vedas were the dominant uh, teachings of the era, and the Brahmin priests were the uh, purveyors of that, the interpreters of it, the mediators between humanity and the gods but apparently I just discovered this in my research for this talk that particular part of well it's now Nepal but what we could call the subcontinent of India um, was uh, not exactly dominated by the Vedic traditions we can assume that he was uh, somewhat exposed to it but not thoroughly indoctrinated And that might have contributed somewhat to his ability to think outside the box, so to speak, of uh, Vedic uh, traditions. 
and he certainly did that. Kshatriya clan was trained in military skill, debate, political intrigue, political negotiation, uh, and that part of the world was undergoing a transition, had been for a few generations, and would go on from there, from primarily farming and hunting to the emergence of towns and small cities, uh, mercantile culture, and the beginning of various what we would call kingdoms or empires. So this culture, craftsmen, tradesmen, and uh, dictators or emperors or kings. Um, so the uh, social, social structure was more complex than it had been previously and much more interactive. So there would be a lot of conflicts. Think about that in terms of how we're dealing with life these days. There was an ongoing tension between these various functions fractions, and um, there were military conflicts. In fact, uh, he was supposedly born in uh, the town of Lumbini and uh, raised in Kapilavatu, both of which are now in what we would call Nepal. Born in the Lumbini and raised in Kapilavatu. But uh, during his lifetime, in his adulthood, after he uh, became known as, as the leader of this, what's called the Dhamma Vinaya, it wasn't called Buddhism, uh, the king of uh, that region, Magadha, invaded that part of the region and basically destroyed Mbidi and uh, Kapilavatu. Oddly enough, turns out that Bimbisara was one of uh, the Buddha's disciples. In fact, he did not call himself the Buddha. He did not use personal pronouns. The word Buddha originated centuries later, and it was an honorific, meaning one who's awake. The word Bodhi is awakened. When he did talk about himself, instead of using the personal pronouns, I or me or mine, he would use the word Tathagata. Uh, and uh, this is how Wikipedia describes that term. It's often thought to mean either one who has thus gone, Tathagata, or one who has thus come, tata agata, or sometimes one who has thus not gone, tata agata. My personally, for me, I use the term mastery of suchness. Um, that depersonalizes the whole thing. I think the reason we use the word, the, the impersonal term tatagata, was to make it very clear the notion of anatta, of, of uh, non-self. There really is not an organized, enduring ego. It's an ongoing, interdependent process. Um, so mastery of suchness, I think, would be a good way to do, uh, translate Tathagata. I'm sure it's not conventional. Um, the word Buddhist 
came to describe this tradition around 1800 of the Common Era, when uh, Europeans began to colonize that part of the world. Here's a quote from a contemporary American Buddhist monk, Tanisaro, describing that community that the Buddha, we'll call him the Buddha, um, originated. Dhamma Vinaya was the Buddha's own name for the religion he founded. Dhamma, the truth, is what he discovered and pointed out as advice for all who want to gain release from suffering. Vinaya, discipline, is what he formulated as rules, ideals, and standards of behaviors for those of his followers who would go forth from home life to take up the quest for release for, in greater earnestness. So Dhamma Vinaya is basically the code of conduct. And even today, renunciates, uh, monks and nuns who take the robes, basically uh, submit their their choices, their life, to the Dhamma Vinaya. Um, so I would loosely translate that as a community of truth seekers. And it's another little irony about my past. When I was in college, I was uh, a hippie, probably one of the first hippies in the state, in Gainesville, University yeah. of Florida. And uh, I would tell people, I'm a truth seeker. I didn't know anything. About, well, I knew something about Buddhism, but not that much, and I wasn't particularly all that interested in it. But I would say to people, I'm a truth seeker. That's what I, I'm interested in. Is what, What's the truth about life? So, um, the Buddha was raised in a particular culture and a particular level of, of um, privilege and comfort. Think about that. In the terms of this, what I'm going to read to you, um, in terms of how we live today, our normal way of life. So here's a quote from uh, part of the teaching, the Anguttara Nikaya. I was delicate, excessively delicate. In my father's dwelling, three lotus ponds were made purposely for me. Blue lotuses bloomed in one, red in another, and white in another. I used no sandalwood that was not of kasi. My turban, tunic, dress, and cloak were all from kasi. Night and day, a white parasol was held over me so that I might not be touched by heat or cold, dust, leaves, or dew. There were three palaces built for me, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. During the four rainy months, I lived in the palace for the rainy season without ever coming down from it, entertained all the while by female musicians. Just as, in the houses of others, food from the husks of rice together with sour gruel is given to the slaves and workmen, even so, in my father's dwelling, food with rice and meat was given to the slaves and workmen. Why do I, being subject to birth, decay, disease, death, sorrow, and impurities, thus search after things of like nature? How, if I, who am subject to things of such nature, realize their disadvantages, and seek after the unattained, unsurpassed, perfect security, which is nibbana. Cramped and confined is household life, a den of dust, but the life of the homeless one is as the open air of heaven. Hard is it for him who abides at home. 
to live out as it should be lived the holy life in all its perfection, all of its purity. So, three palaces, one for the rainy season, one for the dry season, one for the hot season. Geographic climate control. He was part of a privileged class, the origin of which would become the caste system, racially divided, entitled. Turning point apparently involved a party to celebrate the birth of Rahula, his son and heir. Here's a quote from an article found on the BuddhaNet website about his departure. The king, Siddhartha's father, arranged a grand dinner and dance for the prince to celebrate the birth of Rahula. Invited were the best dancers, singers, and musicians in the country. It was not just out of joy that the king arranged the celebration. He could see that the prince was depressed and that his new baby son was not giving him happiness. The king was afraid Siddhartha was planning to leave the palace for good and, for the last time, did his best to distract him away from his somber reflections and back to the abundance of palace life. The prince attended the party just to please his father. During the dinner, the most delicious food was served, the most enchanting and beautiful dancing girls in the country performed, the most sensitive musicians played, and the finest puppets and magicians formed performed incredible feats. But Siddhartha was so tired from thinking that he soon fell asleep. When the singers and dancers saw this too, this they too stopped and fell asleep. Sometime later that night, the prince awoke and was shocked to see these sleeping people. What a sight! All the prettiest, most charming dancing girls, the finest singers, best musicians, cleverest performers in the country, who hours ago were trying to make the prince were now so happy were now all over the floor of the room in the most ugly, shameful, and loathsome positions. Some people were snoring like pigs, with their mouths wide open, some grinding and chewing their teeth like hungry devils. This alteration in their appearance made the prince even more disgusted and unhappy. How oppressive and stifling this all is, he thought. According to the story, the next morning, he left all this behind and uh, joined what are called the Shramana uh, practitioners. So Shramana is a movement that was in reaction to the Vedic hierarchy. These were the people who lived out in the countryside, off the whatever they could find to eat in the land or the, the uh, generosity of the towns and villages. So in Sanskrit, renunciate, uh, in Sanskrit, renunciate, mendicant, or recluse, a term used in ancient India to refer to male religious practitioners of a number of itinerant sects, including Buddhism, often associated with the warrior, Kshatriya caste, which challenged the hegemony of the Brahmana priests and mainstream Brahmanical religion deriving from the Vedas. Shramana teachers were largely philosophical and relatively disorganized as a movement, with much debate among their various disciplines. Apparently the one Siddhartha was drawn to emphasize meditation and asceticism, living primitively, relying on food that could be found in the wild or in the generosity of local communities. So, 
Think about this in terms of how we live today. Our normal life. We have running water, abundance of food, a great deal of which is not particularly healthy, air conditioning, protection from the elements, for the most part, an incredible array of ethically dubious but very effective distracting media. In the midst of this apparently secure lifestyle, we're bombarded with demands for attention, either to convince us to want something or to be afraid of someone or something. And, you know, I spent a whole career as a psychotherapist. Psychologically, a large section of contemporary society is socially isolated, anxious, and insecure, mostly regarding social status. I've talked about this before. Now, we have a significant set of motivational cues, more than ever before in human history. I mean, all the websites, the, the media, they are very carefully, scientifically researched and designed to grab one's attention and direct it in a particular way to be a consumer or to manipulate people to be fearful. And that has a lot to do with the situation we're in right now, politically, culturally, all the conflict that's going on. Um, and that's something we have to contend with. So uh, we think about the time of the Buddha. The culture was changing. There were cultural conflicts. There were wars. Life was pretty insecure. People didn't live for very long. Um, disease was not very well controlled. But he lived what would be the equivalent of a luxurious life today. I mean, his luxurious life is nowhere near as comfortable and luxurious as ours. And yet, anxiety, depression, and addictive disorders are epidemic in this culture, and for a large part in many areas of the world. It's all over the place in the news. So, what causes this, right? Well, I'll be next week that my Dharma talk is going to be about the Four Noble Truths, um, an overview of it, and then we're going to launch into a whole series of talks. Me and my um, um, teachers, that, that my uh, cohort of teachers that I'm mentoring, I'm going to talk about the Four Noble Truths, and we could spend a good bit of the rest of the year talking about it because it's it's a very comprehensive, coherent way to understand the human condition. Um, distress and confusion is the is the element of the first uh, noble truth. The conditions of our life that uh, foster that distress and confusion is the focus of the second noble truth. Third noble truth points the direction toward liberation from distress and confusion. And the fourth noble truth is the ways and means, the noble eightfold path for um, that liberation. 
So, as I said at the beginning, I really want to um, provide a, an opportunity for us to understand what life was like for this person, who I think from an early age was philosophically inclined. I mean, he was trained as a warrior, he was trained in debate, which actually turned out to be pretty good because a lot of the discourses, the suttas, involve him debating with a variety of different people. And he was pretty good at it. And in terms of politics, he was trained as a politician. And it took a lot of political uh, acumen to be able to negotiate those difficult times. Because all these things that were going on culturally, he still managed to start a community, one of the earliest religious uh, communities in history that has persisted even to this day. Um, the institution of Buddhism has a lot of pitfalls like all of the institutions of religion do these days. But there's a, an element of truth of, of, of uh, psychological and spiritual validity and utility in the Four Noble Truths. And the core of that is training the mind, meditation, <coughs> mindfulness meditation. Now, when did I start to meditate? Well, um, as I said earlier, I was a hippie from the college days at the University of Florida and um, experimented with psychedelics other mood-altering substances, and a big fan of the Beatles. And they started to learn about transcendental meditation. So in the early 70s, I learned about transcendental meditation. And I was not that impressed with the institution of transcendental meditation, but training the mind really captured my imagination. I didn't realize it then, but... Um, I have an anxious personality. I realize now, because of my training as a mental health professional, that both my parents were anxious and depressed. Uh, my father was an alcoholic because of his anxiety and depression. And uh, so I think I was pulled to uh, meditation because there was something in me that knew that this was interesting. And like I said before, before I ever started meditating, when I was in college, I told people, I, I, I'm a truth seeker. I really want to understand how things work. Um, it's a lyric from a, a song back then. I don't even remember the group that sang it, but I remember the lyric. What goes on? What goes on? I really want to know. That was my anthem, so to speak. And then... Um, Went through the 70s, uh, trying various techniques, and encountered um, mindfulness meditation. Um, Joseph Goldstein's book, Experience of Insight, was a Christmas gift for me in 1991. Um, no, no, excuse me, 1981. Lose uh, my decades. And... Uh, I read it for Chris, between Christmas and New Year's and then I went on my first retreat 
in April of 82. And at the end of that retreat, which was two weeks long, I realized that this was really important for me. And that's what got me going with meditation. And I was intermittent in my practice. I would go on retreats about every 18 months up to Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And then I'd stop meditating. But then I'd start again before my next retreat. And then stop. Then I'd start again before my next retreat. But finally got to the point. I went on my first three-month retreat in 1990 and realized I need to meditate very seriously. And I've been doing that ever since, um, pretty much on a daily basis. Um, so that's how I got interested in meditation. I am not particularly inviting anyone to go into a deep self-disclosure. I'm pretty comfortable with talking about my um, shortcomings, so to speak. Uh, I'm not saying that you all should as well, but I do want to open the discussion for people to just think out loud about why do you meditate? What is it that drew you to meditation? It could be a philosophical uh, consideration. It it might be just that um, you were stressed and you realized that meditating was a great way to manage your stress. So, um, anybody have any willingness to share what motivates you to meditate? What got you started in meditation? This could be anyone who's been meditating for many years. I know some of you have. could be someone who's just getting started. John? Uh, I have a question before I say how I got started, which is, are you saying the Four Noble Truths are not Buddhism? or are you? Saying- oh, they are Buddhism. They are at the core of Buddhism. No matter which school of Buddhism, Theravada, Mahayana, uh, Vajrayana, the core of it is the Four Noble Truths. What book would you say, like, you know, the Christian says the Bible, what book would you say covers all of the, you know? Well, there's not a book like the Bible. Um, well, there's Michael a book called, the, there's a book called the Visuddhimagga which is a very comprehensive collection of teachings in the Theravadan tradition. But um, I would say that the uh, sutras, the Buddhist sutras, um, which uh, are part of Theravada Buddhism, they're also part of Mahayana Buddhism, um, would be the equivalent of of the Bible. The, The Buddhism puts more emphasis on certain concepts about the mind and the discipline of meditation to cultivate those concepts. One of the things that I've said many times over the years, whether you're a, a, a Buddhist or not, if you're a Christian, if you're uh, Islamic, Jewish, um, Mormon, whatever, If you pay attention to the discipline of meditation and you study the concepts of Buddhism and you take that back to your faith tradition, you will get more out of your faith tradition. 
so that that would be my um, answer to your question. So, what got you started, John? Well, I graduated uh, from Florida State in '72, and I was a communications major, and I was really a. Uh, and I got a job with the St. Pete Times at a place called Temple Six News, which was a four-anchor, one-hour live news program uh, put on down in Bradenton, is where it has to began. And uh, I became an editor. You know, I, I was a video editor and taking directions from a, a director. It was quite an ideal job for my major. And uh, I just would get stressed out. And I for somehow stumbled on the Bhagavad Gita, stumbled on mindfulness meditation and began. They didn't have a monthly or weekly Sangha meeting like, you know, or I website. And I, I started doing that to sort of regenerate myself and stay high energized to edit for, you know, a one hour live TV with four anchors. You had a lot of news. Edit. Anyway, that's how I got involved with it was just to regenerate, recoup. I didn't know any of the, um, um, the the philosophy behind it or anything. I just used the tool, and I did it for twenty years religiously because it worked so well. I never found anything. I came from a Catholic background, but I was never, you know, my father and mother. Uh, uh, my father was Catholic. My mother was agnostic. You know, the teacher versus the salesman. Anyway, point being, I. Um, uh, Started Transcendental Meditation, met Peter 20 years later, 1993, at a Unity Church, by all the craziest thing. And he was telling me about mindfulness meditation. And so I I just went, it was hilarious. I went to, you know, began meditating 30 years ago with this guy and have him stop, you know, mindfulness meditation, as opposed to TM. Yeah. Correct. But you start out with you start out with TM, not with mindfulness. It's it's basically uh, what your brain does. Your brain does it long before any of these books or any. You know what I mean? So if you can calm your brain down to what I call no think, that's what I call transcendence, or jhana, the Buddhists call it, mindfulness meditators call it uh, tra uh, transcendence. But it's just simply your brain quits thinking, and that's the rest you get de-stressing if you consistently sit. You will experience that. And anyway, that's why I, I did it because of my work. And it was just such a relief, you know. I was an ex. I went through five years of the Marine Corps, you know what I mean? So I had a lot of agitation and a lot of anxiety. And this took me this gift hit my face. And... Okay. So anybody else? Um, yes. Uh, All right, Sharon? Yeah. Um... Just listening to you and to uh, John, um, it I, I I now can remember when I began to meditate seriously, and I had tried to meditate in previous times, but um, the best results I could get was when I was in an activity like a yoga um, practice or some other type of activity. But I remember when you, I first moved here to Central Florida, and I believe you were a guest speaker in some kind of a, like a warehouse or a space near the railroad tracks, yeah. where Lee Road and um, 
and I believe it was sponsored by Pat Breslin. Um, yes, yes, time. that's where I first started teaching. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And it wasn't, I didn't first move here then. I'd lived here almost all my life. Right, except that whatever it was that you presented resonated to me in a way that was meaningful, and I could, I could really relate to the process of meditation. And I believe it was mostly about, I don't know that you went into a Dharma talk as much as a talk about the benefits of meditation and the practice of being present with the breath. And however it was that you presented whatever it was you presented, it really resonated. And I didn't really, I, I was thinking, how, when, when did I begin? And I would have to point to that particular um, meeting that you had presented. And just to put a little extra onto my, the timing of it, you were selling cassette tapes of guided meditation and I bought one for a dollar <laughs> and I yeah. used it. So <laughs> that kind of, that kind of puts it in the, in the context of uh, 1990s, yep. mid, mid 1990s. Yeah, actually so, probably 1992 or 93. It would have been, I moved here in 93. So yeah. So it would have been it a little like, later than that. It, it could have been 94, but I will say, that it was really soon after I moved here. And it was like my, it, it kind of opened up something within me that allowed me to um, uh, view it in a way, or at least start the practice in a way that I could, um, I could, I could um, stay present. And that was the way however it was that you presented it for me to um, begin uh, to really uh, understand, I guess it is, whatever you were conveying. And just as another point, you talked about being a truth seeker. Just tonight I'm listening to that and also connecting because I tend to... um, lean into that myself. So thank you. You're welcome, Sharon. Thank you. Anybody else? What got you, what gets you going? Why do you meditate? What's the payoff? What's the motivation? Well Sharon. Sharon. Um I'm going to put my camera off because sometimes I fade in and out when the camera's on. Um, but uh, like me, I, I mean, I have been drawn for um, since the 70s to um, meditation and Eastern philosophies. However, um, I haven't stayed connected um continuously I kind of go in and out um same with meditation um so just currently and since I got connected with um Peter and Orlando Insight I first came um because I had a physical injury and I was looking for pain relief and being a nurse 
I do know that that they teach um, and recommend and suggest um, mindfulness and meditation and mindfulness practice in order to relieve chronic pain. And there's been evidence that it, it does work because you're concentrating on something other than the pain. And so that was why I, I first came. And um, but I was very interested in a lot of the Dharma talks that I heard and I just, you know, and I've gone in and out. I mean, I've had periods where I've been able to sit for maybe 30 minutes at most and um, for several days or weeks, and then I'll stop. But what I noticed the most, and this is why I really am going to continue and want to continue and it's so important for me is that it does create a calming effect over me as well as clarity. And I think those are some of the objectives. Um, and I just, it's just my personal experience and feelings that when I'm calm, those around me will be calm. Or if they're not, I don't react to them. And therefore, you know, I'm preserving my self for what it is. But I'm also generating that calmness out into the community. Now, whether people receive it or not, I don't really have any control over that but i i just have a belief that that is um a truth that if i'm and, and the world is very chaotic right now <laughs> so um all over is very very chaotic so for me um i've chosen uh to somewhat withdraw and not necessarily from society altogether, because I'm here tonight, but from social media, I just can't, I can't participate anymore. It's too much information. It, and so um, somewhat of a withdrawal. And I do appreciate my peace and quiet, um, quietness and hoping to, you know, make myself a better, better person. So I can spread those vibes around to um, the community. And that's, that's why I'm here. And that's why I, I meditate. And it creates a, a better awareness, more awareness. And I, I want to be aware of what I'm doing and where I am and, you know, how I'm breathing how I'm feeling, how I'm treating others. I, I want that awareness. So thanks. Thank you, Karen. Now, one of the things I think is remarkable about these days, when you tune into the media in all of its different forms, it does seem like the world is chaotic. But the way I live my life in my home and in my neighborhood, it's not chaotic. It's actually kind of nice. 
And I think that that's something to really pay attention to is how much we are conditioned in terms of what's going on in the world. And I'm not dismissing the horror of what's going on in Ukraine, in the Middle East, and other parts of the world at all. What I'm saying is it's important to make a distinction between how I'm actually living my life and what I'm told about life by the media. It's really important, and I think that mindfulness plays a great role in being able to make that distinction. And it does not absolve me from responsibility for my choices either. Um, but I think that I my, make my choices from a more peaceful and informed process than would be the case if I wasn't meditating on a regular basis. Well, anybody else want to share about your, your motivation for meditation? Brian? Um, I think I, we talked about this a little bit in the group last night, so I'll be brief. But um, initially, I think what brought me to it was uh, looking for a sense of spirituality that was divorced from organized religion. My parents were not religious, and um, I'm uh, definitely more atheistic, scientific in my own mindset. So there was some appeal to um, to some of the more grounded things that I felt like mindfulness meditation had. But I was also was spiritually sort of captivated by the idea of enlightenment. And so thinking about, okay, this is it. This is like the ultimate, like that's the thing to shoot for. Um, I'd say in my practice now, that's still a factor, but uh, it's also very grounded in the, the peace I get from it, the stress relief, all of the other benefits that I see, whether or not that eventual goal comes to pass or not, or is even, you know, I don't, even a, a, a possibility, oh, but but the, the pieces I get and, and the peace I get from the practice, I think now is what is really um, drawing me back to it. So let me add to that, Brian. There are any number of activities that humans can be engaged in. Musicians, you know, being a musician, athletics, crafts, so forth and so on. We can be interested in mastering those different skills how much time and effort are we willing to devote to that we live in a culture that is very distracted well depends right if you're if you're caught up in all the media stuff it's pretty distracting but uh if you find a a way to bring balance and attention to your daily lifestyle, you can really accomplish something. And I think that part of our dilemma as Americans is short attention span. People, for a person to spend some time every day training the mind to settle down and not be so distracted, it goes against the grain. In fact, there's a term in Buddhism, analoma, which is 
often called against the grain, but what it really meant in Pali was what happens when you comb your hair against its natural growing pattern. What does uh, that word? That's what it means, analoma. Analoma. Yeah. Oh. But it means basically going against the grain. So a lot of people won't, they won't persist with meditation because it seems so difficult. But when a person commits to training with the meditation, what becomes more and more clear for me, I think I can generalize this, what's stressful is when we're not mindful. The stuff that distracts us is is what's hard. Being with the breath is so peaceful, so clear, so uncomplicated, so rejuvenating. But then the mind jumps track into what about this? What about that? That's where the hard part is. So I, I want to say this again in terms of motivation to meditate. Being with the breath is not the problem. Being distracted, craving and clinging is the problem. So the idea is to realize that you can be liberated from that distress and confusion that comes from craving and clinging. When you make use of the sensation of breathing, it's simplicity and it's peacefulness as a refuge. So keep that um, in your mind when when you're motivating yourself to meditate, even while you're meditating, when the mind jumps track again. One of my teachers is uh, Sharon Salzberg. And I was on a loving kindness retreat with her in the mid-1980s. And I heard her say something that really stayed with me. It's actually in her book, too. Uh, Meditation is the art of starting over. So that's a really important part of this. What's hard about meditating is not mindfulness of breathing. What's hard about meditating are what are called the the, uh, hindrances. So, John, you had something you wanted to add? I do. Um, I met Peter in 93, and I'd had this, my major in college was communication, but um, mindfulness meditation is a mantra. You have a sound, and you, you know, you stay with that sound until your mind calms down to stillness. I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh, did the still forest pond. I may have that name. No, that was, that was uh, Ajahn Cha. But I think the, the parallel is the same as you're getting to that still mind. And um, like I said, the uh, transcendence people call it um, transcendence, and then Buddhist people call it jhana. That's how I understand it. But the point of it is, is that when I started watching the breath, it was easier. It was clearer. And I think that balance is needed so much for people to, to carry this mindfulness with them today to distinguish, as Peter said, um, when you're agitated, you know, and I think one of the biggest problems is some of our news programs or media that people don't understand what journalism is versus somebody's opinion. And you watch like NewsHour, you're going to get a good example of journalism or um, Christine Allen Ports at 11 o'clock. That you'll get good journalism from there because you hear both sides, whereas opinions do so much damage. And I know people that will fight me. And I think this is part of this agitation of the brain 
because they don't know, they can't distinguish that balance. And they, they don't know the difference between an opinion news versus journalism. And I think that is agitation causing. I don't think that creates the balance that the sitting does. So I can't, I, I like Peter's uh, explanation because that's a parallel to what keeping your mind quiet, carrying that balance with you, the benefit of sitting. That's, yes. that's just another way of putting it. Yes, thank you. Anybody else have anything to share about what motivates you, what got you started with meditation? Mary? And then Julian. Okay, um, I'll try to explain it. Um, I don't have a lot of practice talking about this topic. Um, but for me, I've, what attracts me is, you know, for myself, there is a, what I call an overdeveloped sense of Mary as an individual. And I experience it in my body. Like I'll have this really strong contraction in my left eye. So that's kind of where I exist. And I've worked really hard on um, where I just create that through muscle contraction. And I, I realize that. And so I've decreased that a lot, but I now have a muscle contraction that I'm aware of is like, like the, there was I here, but there's also an I in my chest that I'm working on. And um, what intrigues me with the, um, you know, I'm just kind of new at, at learning about meditation, but I like the idea of um, severing or realizing that there isn't, you don't exist in a way like separate from everything else. And um I I know that my my individual sense as Mary creates a lot of tension because it's like when I go outside and I'm in public, I'm self-conscious because it's Mary and everyone that looks is there is looking at Mary and making all these judgments. And so with meditation, uh I I would like to <laughs> sever that and be like have that greater connection to just everything and not separate myself from it. So let me give you a couple of pointers. One of them is the sensation of breathing is not Mary. It's a phenomena of nature. It involves the, the pressures that the atmosphere puts on your skin, your nostrils, when air moves in and moves out. That's just nature, being nature. Same thing is true about muscle contractions. You know, this is what organisms do. They have muscles and they contract. In Buddhism, that's called rupa, form. What the mind makes of rupa is called nama. And understanding that how the mind interprets 
the process of interpretation is not a self. It's also a phenomenon of nature. It's something that happens in the brain that creates a sense of self. Now, the notion of non-self doesn't mean there is no such thing as your subjective experience. Your subjective experience is real, but the notion that there's an identity that has to be defended or gratified, defended against muscle contractions, or defended against how another person's face is when they look at you, or the tone of a person's voice, or other body language. That's just light. It's nature doing what nature does. Your task is to understand how the mind makes meaning from that and find ways to respond that are less fretful, less conflicted. I call it moving from self-state conflict to self-state integration. You can still be out in the world, but without feeling quite so stressed or tense. You see how that could work, Mary? Uh, yeah, um, it's like, I don't think I understand everything you said. And this is my my attempt, like starting this evening to be a little more serious about understanding these concepts and 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 um having getting pointers and tips to guide me so do you live in central florida no i live in california where in california uh ridgecrest it's uh in the desert southern california yeah um do you know a place called Yucca Valley? I've heard of it. Uh, there are meditators there. There's a retreat center there. Um, I think it's near Palm Springs, but I'm not sure. But you might want to check in with that. There's also something called mindfulness-based stress reduction. Have you ever heard of that? No. MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Uh, go online and research that. There might be a, a Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction course available for you uh, near where you live. Okay? Okay. Oh. And I hope that you'll uh, continue to join us and because uh, I'm going to start talking about the, these concepts next week. I think I just lost you. Let me see. Oh, there. Okay. Yeah, I can see you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I closed my end out. Yeah. <laughs> Minimized it. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. So let's go to Julian. What what gets you going with this, sir? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think I started because of uh, through the uh, physical practice of yoga asanas. And um, I remember some teachers which after the 
physical practice, then we have like five to eight minutes uh, meditation practice. And I I realized like how how the mind was already settled by just doing the asanas, uh, being attentive to the movement uh, of the or being in the pose in the postures. And I think when I when I was finishing a, a graduate studies, I wanted to get more clarity on the, what will be my next steps, and I thought that this clarity I can get it by. Um, by um, attending a meditation retreat. Um, indeed, I got clarity, but not the clarity I specifically, like I got, I got more like um, a broader sense of clarity because I, by noticing what's, by being attentive of what's the mind is um, um, focused or doing, um, I was I started like to understand what the mind uh, is is craving or, or or trying to avoid, and that has helped me a lot to um, accept um, situations, to be present, and also to be more kind with myself. And also by being kind to myself, I can also um, be kinder to other people. So that's that's a big. Uh, a big, uh, a great result. I mean, consequence. Absolutely, you're right. Spot on, sir. Thank you. Anybody else? All right. So I think that's enough uh, discussion about this topic. Uh, as I said earlier, next week I'm going to. Uh, do an overview of the uh, Four Noble Truths. And as I said, then this is the core of all Buddhist teaching. And it's a very profound psychology. I've said this many times. I think that the person we call the Buddha was the first psychologist in uh, human history. And, um, it has a profound effect on us when we commit to studying the concepts and then training the mind to realize what is described in the Four Noble Truths. So it's our custom at the end of each meeting to sit quietly for a brief period of time. So we'll do that now. your practice. I wish you well and I hope that we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to talk. <laughs>